0: This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. I'm not sure if you've seen this yet, but Helix just published the Enrollment Growth Playbook, the largest collection of adult enrollment growth strategies ever released to the industry, outlining how Helix grows their partner's enrollment eight times faster than the industry average. From determining growth opportunities to designing a marketing strategy, streamlining enrollment operations, solidifying a retention approach, and leveraging technology and data intelligence, the Enrollment Growth Playbook is an institution step-by-step roadmap to adult student enrollment success. And you can download it today for free. Just visit helixeducation.com slash happyhour. And hello and welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. It is late December, December 21st, uh, 2016. Yes. Is it the 22nd? It is the 21st. It's December 21st. Winter solstice today. Winter solstice today. Um, I am Kevin Carey, Director of the Education Policy Program at New America. And I'm joined by my co host, Libby Nelson from Vox.com. Hi, Libby. Hi, Kevin. so I, li- I saw that you went on the Weeds podcast with our mutual friend, Matt, and did education. I did. How was that?
1: Um, well, the good news is I can pronounce Betsy DeVos's name correctly, so this podcast will already be a step up from yes. that one. So it's DeVos, um, not DeVos? It is DeVos, not DeVos. Okay. As someone who rhymes with boss and not gross, which is the mnemonic device I'm going to be using from yep. here on here on out. So our new education secretary.
0: It's very exciting. Um, You know, I I was, I don't know if you ever listened to our old podcast. I hate uh, the sound of my own voice. (laughs) uh, So I I was listening to our last one, just to be sure, just to try not to repeat myself a little bit, Mm -hmm. because we, this is another just you and me and sort of what's going on in the world. Um, I want to like apologize a little Mm -hmm. bit to our listeners. The first half hour of that podcast is basically you making some very astute Mm -hmm. points about uh, voter behavior in the face of growing diversity. And me literally just being like, I don't know, man, I don't know what's going on. I'm so confused with even more kind of fast talking and up talk than, than is normal for me. So um, to all of you listeners who are listening to this podcast, uh, anyway, thank you very much. I kind of got it together in the later part when we got and the you like maybe
1: doing one the week after the election was yeah, not was, like the best idea we've ever had. It was eight days so, after the election. Yeah. Um,
0: but there was a lot going on, so so I will try to do better uh, this time. What are we drinking? You have brought Yeah, today.
1: so I have brought, this is a cocktail called The Fairy Tale of New York, named after the wow. best Christmas song. Uh, if we have any British readers, they, listeners, they will for sure be familiar with it. And it is basically an old-fashioned um but instead of sugar or simple syrup, it is a syrup with apples, pears, cinnamon, nutmeg, and walnuts. Wow. So that
0: sounds great.
1: I feel like we needed to step up after the Bitter Manhattans the last week, which of were the like, man- really, truly one of the worst things I've put in yeah. my mouth since I turned 21. Yep. So let's see. I hope you like it. Cheers. are they're, they're in favor cups, guys.
0: Mmm. Yep. That is the taste of the holiday season.
1: <laughs> it is, yeah. I also think we have like five more days to drink these. So, yeah. yeah. Thank
0: you very much. That's really good. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we spent a lot of time last time speculating (laughs) about the next uh, education secretary. Now we have one. Uh, Here we are. Betsy DeVos, uh, a wealthy republican activist so so for the listeners who haven't been kind of reading about this i guess just to recap um betsy devos is a member of the devos family which is based in michigan they're sort of like a much less infamous version of the Koch brothers is that a fair statement
1: yeah they they made their money from amway and sort of multi-level marketing which is in some ways sort of a more interesting backstory but they are they are big conservative donors very influential in republican politics a lot of money And kind of spread throughout the family.
0: And Betsy DeVos was both born into a lot of money and then married a lot more money, right? So the
1: yes, in fact, the DeVos money. I'm going to get confused in which the sources of the money are, but they are they are all very rich uh, people.
0: Amway money is part of it, and then there's some other also. Yeah, there's there's sort of a lot
1: of sources of this wealth. I'm going to look this up so I can, in two minutes, talk about it sure, uh, sure. a little more cogently. Yeah, so
0: she, um, I guess the most important thing to say, to start, is that she's a K-12 person. Right. And there had been, as we've sort of discussed a little bit, uh, some speculation back when people thought Hillary Clinton would win the election that the next secretary might, for the first time, be a, quote, higher ed person, given the how much more higher education mattered on the Democratic side of the uh, of the presidential race, but but no, um, uh, in keeping with form, the new secretary uh, is a K through twelve person, and really exclusively, yes, a K through twelve person, and very specifically one. And so she has um, made a name for herself as a very staunch supporter of the school choice movement, um, uh, vouchers and charter schools, and. This is a higher ed podcast, so we won't go too far into those weeds, although they are very weedy and kind of interesting and will probably become more so, I would imagine.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about uh, choosing DeVos, first of all, is that Although she's not, she probably is not known at all uh, to people who focus largely on higher ed. Mm -hmm. And even in the K-12 space is certainly not the most prominent conservative that I I would have thought of off the top of my head. There were some state chiefs and some others who are sort of the more typical Republican pick uh, in there. She is like very much a movement person and she is very much uh, the school voucher movement specifically. She has done some stuff around charter schools, but really like school vouchers are her singular, I would say, cause in yep. education. Um, yep. So this it is a little bit different than, you know, for someone who had has led a K-12 system but has had to work with higher ed people as part of that job. I mean, this is someone who very much isn't coming out of the activist wing of the party as opposed to sort of mm-hmm. the managerial wing of the party, I would say, uh, which is a, sort of a kinder way of saying that she has very, very little experience actually working in education beyond her philanthropic and activist efforts
0: yeah and it's it's hard to tell right because it, she hasn't founded or run these organizations she's on the boards mm-hmm. of many of them she's on the board of AEI um many of the many if not most of the major kind of conservative um uh or conservative-ish organizations I think probably EdNext, next to 74 million even, like even ones like that are there sort of like right, in the middle. Right, More hard. And so it's when a a very rich person is on the board of a nonprofit, it's hard to tell if they're on the board because they're smarter or because they're rich. Um, Speaking of someone who's on the board, (laughs) who works for a nonprofit where we sort of try to recruit, ideally both. If you can get someone who's (laughs) both at the same time, that is what you really want. But sometimes you'll settle for one or the other. Um, And so it's just, it's hard to know um, because uh, because she hasn't sort of run anything herself. And now she will be in charge of a very large, in its own way, kind of complicated federal organization. Um, you know, I think on the uh, you know, I, I we do both K-12 and higher ed here at New America and, and I sometimes uh, put my feet in both worlds and you know, it was it was one of the earlier picks and and has been in some ways been contextualized by the extremity of the Trump cabinet, which again right. we we speculated on A lot last time um, Because she doesn't seem to Want to complete She doesn't disagree with the idea of education Situates her in the moderate wing of the Trump cabinet You know Um, She's not her goal isn't to destroy the agency that she's in charge of running.
1: I mean, I, I would say she has not like explicitly come out and yeah. said that she wants to destroy right. the agency she's in charge of running. But I do yeah. think it's, I mean, it's notable that she is someone who is not a public education person. I think. I think that's right. Tra- I mean, charter schools are public schools, but she is not, yeah. she's not a really a charter. She is not really affiliated with the charter movement nearly so much as she is affiliated with sort of choice Uh, With sort of the the broader choice movement and vouchers in particular. Um, And I I do think that, I mean, there are no, you know, there are no proposals that she has put out there to eliminate the Department of Education entirely, but I, I don't think it's unfair to say that a huge goal of hers would be to send much more public education money to private schools yeah, and, get, I, and get a I lot of kids right. out of the public school system. So on, she's on yeah. that continuum, I would say, in a way that someone like uh, Hannah Scandera or some of the, the other mm. people he was reportedly considering are not.
0: Her her work on charter schools has mostly been to make them as voucher-like as possible, I think, uh, to... Right, she, and there's been...
1: Yeah, there's been a sort of a... I don't, I'm not going to get too far into the weeds mm. on this because I have not followed the latest iterations of this argument, but uh, the main thing she did was was sort of push for charter schools in Michigan which is not a state where the charter sector has particularly distinguished itself no. um and in Detroit specifically which is where it has really not distinguished itself opposed some or has been uh, really some way. accountability provisions that uh, some said would have given other entities in Detroit too much power some say would have like tried to put mm-hmm. some kind of check on the sector the charter the charter sector in uh, Michigan is not not known for its. Uh, extreme high quality compared to some other states, I would say. It's,
0: and it is unusually mostly a for-profit charter Yes, school, it is mostly a for-profit.
1: It is mostly for-profit. There are very few checks and balances or um, sort mm-hmm. of uh, limits on who can start a charter school or when you're kicked out of the system. And so that's sort of the the part of this world that she's coming from, which is, is pretty different from, say, Arne Duncan, uh, to yeah. name another very prominent charter school supporter.
0: Right. But more of a like... Charter school friendly public education reform Democrat, mm-hmm. which is really different than a charter school friendly pro voucher Republican. Yes, I mean the, yeah. they, they meet a little bit in the middle, but they're coming from very different places. And so we'll see. Right? You, I know you and Matt were talking about there is actually sort of a liveish proposal from Trump around charters, and it would you know involve essentially probably block granting the Title One program and giving more conservative states the ability to turn the Title One program into a voucher or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's. Um... He's been shockingly somewhat vague about it, but Mm. it is a plan that would block Grant, in all likelihood, Title I, which is the funding for low-income schools and Mm. IDEA, which is special ed funding, uh, into some kind of voucher. And then through some kind of Arnie Duncan-esque nudge to states, uh, Mm. get them to kick in a huge amount of their state funding for this as well. Which is madness, I think. Yeah, I I don't believe that it's going to happen, but Mm. it is worth noting that there is a proposal on the table to do this. He has appointed someone who's goal, as far as we can tell, would line up very much with this. I mean, she is not – she had to come out on the record about Common Core after she'd been appointed. She's not someone who has been really engaged in these broader debates that we've been having around education nationally for the past uh, 8 to 12 to 16 years.
0: Yeah, I think she – so she's having to pretend to be against the Common Core now in some kind of vague way, although I assume – that's a little bit like, you know, Barack Obama pretending to be against gay marriage, you know, like when he came in. Like I don't I don't buy it actually. Um but she's made some statements about, you know, just generalized kind of pro local control statements. Yes, and, yeah. Um we will get to higher ed for the higher ed people out there who are getting impatient with this discussion, but I think it is relevant because it it um, it gives us, you know, we we actually it's hard to tell. There's not that much Yeah, it's very hard
1: to talk. I mean, I'm I'm very glad that my job was not writing up what she might mean for higher ed, because it's just really difficult to say. She is not someone who has really, like, any Mm -hmm. track record on it at Mm -hmm. all. She has, in part, because she has not held positions where she's had to network with higher ed, take sort of positions on higher ed issues of consequence. Um, It's really a, a large black box, which could mean that you know, I think some colleges would probably see this as a, a plus, and that the department is going to go back to administering student loans and sure. sending out Pell grants, and that's you know, walk away from some of the the, the other initiatives of the past eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is not someone who really has much of a paper trail at all on what she might thinks about what she might think about some of the higher ed issues that are going to come up.
0: I did get the sense that earlier in her philanthropic career, there was a. Uh, uh, um, Giving related to LGBTQ issues, ie like opposing gay marriage. Yes, um, yeah, but that she's dialed back dialed that back and was never really a, a vociferous culture warrior in any way. I mean, I mean, it's not she does not have a track record of inflammatory statements on lots of things at all. I mean, that doesn't seem to be her style.
1: No, but I, I would say one thing. I mean, as far as the education department goes that I've looked at already is sort of the future of the Office of Civil Rights. Mm. Um, and, and that to me is an office yes. that is that is uh, in charge of administering Title IX. They also do a lot of other things. They put out an annual report recently that is actually just very interesting reading because it's a reminder that they have done stuff besides um Title IX, Title yeah. uh, and, and related to all kinds of racial and, and cultural and language-oriented discrimination in both K-12 and uh, higher education. The future of that office, to me, sort of regardless of who the education secretary was, my guess is we're going to see it rolled uh, really quite a bit back from where it's been in terms of how activist mm-hmm. it is, how 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 much it's willing to serve as a backstop on these issues, and certainly how aggressively it's going to pursue investigations.
0: Yeah. And we just actually had a recent um, flare-up of the debate at the, uh, and again, overlapping with Big Ten football, which we'll get to as we always do, <laughs> um, with the University of Minnesota football team staging a, essentially a 48-hour boycott saying that they were going to refuse to play in the Holiday Bowl Oh no, the holiday (laughs) ball Whatever that is Um, uh, Because uh, the university Had chosen to suspend 10 members Of the team due to Allegations of sexual assault Uh, So it it was a classic case to sort of put all these Issues on the table in the sense that Um, There was an accusation um, Mm -hmm. that uh, five members of the team sexually assaulted a woman at an off-campus party. Uh, The police chose not to prosecute them. But then the university uh, investigated using the different and Mm -hmm. in many ways more uh, looser standards of evidence um, uh, that uh, the department has instructed colleges Mm -hmm. to use and chose. And under those standards came to a different finding and suspended the players. uh, And the um, players said they were going to boycott, but they eventually backed down. Yeah. Um, eventually, the, play.
1: among other things, the full report on the incident came out. Yeah. It is not clear if that was the cause of them backing out. A lot of their parents also apparently were sort of peeved. This was the hill they were choosing to die on. Well, there there mean, were a lot of factors at play here, yeah. but it they made a statement. They got a lot of attention to it. Uh, it.
0: It was not exactly Mario Savio, you know, on the steps of Berkeley saying, "Throw your bodies on the, you know, on the machine of capitalism or whatever." Right, I mean, right. like their their defense was yes five of us had sex with one drunk woman and videotaped it but she was into it like that was their defense yeah it,
1: it is not a super uplifting story so, uh all yeah, around i would say yeah
0: um
1: and unfortunately it appears to have done nothing to combat the rampant misconceptions about the purpose of title nine and how it is pursued uh, among the public which right. at this point i think is not fixable i've been trying for years
0: so we'll see. I mean, it's kind of, and there's been some interesting questions that we've talked about. That even if even if the department dials back, like, well, I think there will be a lot, a lot of pressure on campuses to keep the standards. Yeah, I, I agree. Be, I mean, I, I, and I think I don't, most of them will.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't see them. Although I suppose they could going so far as to dictate another standard of evidence. Mm-hmm. My guess is it would just sort of be a reversal of the the infamous 2011 guidance that started it all, um, and right. sort of saying you you can. Hey, we're Mm. implicitly or explicitly saying, hey, you know, we're not going to we're not going to lean as hard on this um, as the Obama administration has. Um, And there certainly are. I mean, undoing um, on another issue, undoing BOC, our guidance on transgender students in bathrooms is a huge priority for, to me, extremely unclear reasons uh, for House Republicans. So they are there is going to be sort of are they unclear,
0: like logically or? Yeah,
1: just (laughs) just uh, just, uh, just in the same same, right. same frame of this is this is the hill you're really dying on yeah. uh, personally but um, that is on their list so there is going to be some some messing around with OCR and their priorities regardless right. um, and that is something that absolutely will affect higher education
0: so I think we can also assume that either via regulation or congressional action there will be a assault on the uh, uh, gainful employment regulations yes. um, uh, which you know um, I have a lot of thoughts and opinions on that. I mean, it's, it's, I guess from my perspective in some ways, like, and this is probably where it would be good to have our friend Andrew back here, now that now that passions have cooled a little bit <laughs> since the election, but, um, just seems like such, a, a, su- such proof that evidence means nothing in these discussions. You know, like you go all the way back to eight years ago when the Obama administration started this and they said, we really need to regulate this sector. And people said, no, you don't, and no, you shouldn't, and it's a bad idea. And the regulations have never even really mattered all that much because they they took a while to get them out and then there was a lawsuit and they've only been in place. And yet, if you look at the institutions that were identified early on as being terrible, they're the ones that were terrible. You know, Corinthian colleges, ITT, that basically went out of business on their own or with kind of a nudge from the department, but not not because of gainful.
1: Right, I mean, this is actually one that I have a really hard time figuring out how to think about because I think the evidence on this sort of cuts both ways. On the one hand, they came in, they made this mm. huge regulatory noise they made right. this a huge priority and not just the obama administration there was the senate democratic report um mm. there was a lot of sort of publicity on how bad some institutions were eight years later they are a desperately weakened sector yeah. i would say i don't think repealing gainful employment on its own will be enough to revive them but i don't know i am getting out of the game of prediction um i don't so, do so
0: you have to get back in eventually. So is this
1: like the free market <laughs> acting and, you know, these these bad institutions would have gone out of business on their own? Is this, you know, are we underestimating the nudges that the education department gave them? Well, arguably,
0: they were more than nudges, you know? Yeah, they, I mean, they yeah. just- they I, I just, mean, Corinthian, right, Corinthian so.
1: specifically, there was a, a direct sort and of ITT cause too, and effect. Too, um, yeah. But at the same time, they, as it turns out, they did not actually need this tool. Um, it's true.
0: No, they could use the tools they had. They did it again last week, I think, with a for-profit law school. Yeah. Um, and we just saw a few weeks ago, since our last podcast, uh, I think it was the FTC right mm-hmm. negotiated a hundred million dollar settlement with DeVry University, right? Which I used to think of as like the notch, sh- the among the less shady of the for-profits. Been around a long time. Um, but but it was all around the same kind of deceptive marketing practices and claims of job Mm -hmm. placement rates and so they're going to have to I think, you know, basically give the FTC $50 million to disperse to the students and then forgive another $35 million in in, uh, loans that they made. I mean, it's a lot of money.
1: Yeah, that that also segues neatly into one of the other regulations that um, the Freedom Caucus, which is the sort of tea party, the most tea Mm -hmm. party of the House Republicans, uh, want to get rid of is the new defense repayment regulations about when you you get loan forgiveness, essentially. Um, Those are on the list to be knocked out. A new state authorization rule slid under the radar by coming out the day after they made the list of the regulations they wanted to repeal, but I have to assume that would be on there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's sort of hard to write about this and to say that this is a, a regulatory assault that would be transformative because if there's anything we've learned from the past eight years, I think for me it's the the attitude of the department mattered much more than any specific regulation they propagated, yeah. both on this and on Title IX,
0: right.
1: honestly. Like if there is a will to do it and to use the tools that you have to do it, I'm not going to say gainful didn't matter because I, I can't run this alternate universe mm-hmm. simulation where it went into effect um, and what the process of rulemaking drew attention to the issue and put universities on notice and all of that. Um, but I, I to me, it seems like on this issue specifically, it's less about these individual regulations and more about sort of the, the atmosphere uh, that for-profits are going to be operating in.
0: Yeah, that atmosphere is important. We need like a political scientist to create some sort <laughs> of... Uh, uh, like theoretical construct around the atmosphere, you know? I mean, that's... I think that's, what, that's very, what, I'm very interested yeah. in the research I'm sure yeah. is
1: going to be done um, or maybe is already being done. And if you're doing it, let me know about sort of the, the for-profit universe of the past five to six years. Right.
0: We should get... So I want to get my friend uh, Steve Tellis to come in here on the podcast to talk about a variety of issues. But he's a political scientist and super smart guy. <laughs> and maybe there probably already is a theoretical construct and he can just kind of tell us... <laughs> That this is this has already been figured out and people have a way of talking about the atmosphere, kind of the attitude, the, commu- right. the communication, the the threat of regulation, and how all these yeah, things. Yeah, because it's kind it's of, not the
1: direct regulation. Yeah. It's sort of the interpretation of existing regulations. It's I mean, it is the threat of regulation, mm-hmm. but that that wasn't really gainful. Has not put a single for profit by itself, right, or program out of business at the moment. But it's sort of this combination of of factors that were sort of united by a determination to do something about this sector.
0: No, I think we can assume that the, we've talked before about how the Department of Education essentially has a kill switch that it can use to, to cut Title IV money off or right. raise the financial requirements on on shaky institutions and, and shut them down. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming the new department will be less enthusiastic about using that. Um, I, I mean, that's just, again, all speculation based on on the general kind of philosophies and attitudes of the administration and to some extent the in, incoming secretary. I mean, I think it is – I wrote about this a little bit after Secretary DeVos was uh, – or future Secretary DeVos was nominated. But, but uh, even though she's a K-12 person, I, I've spoken to uh, the last couple of secretaries of education. And I remember actually talking to Margaret Spellings. Shortly after she left the job and, and, you know, one thing she said was, man, I spent a lot of time working on student loan stuff. Yeah. and she was a K12 person right like she was one of the main she
1: she came in as a K12 person i i actually feel that this yeah. is maybe not a super useful distinction we yeah. um, had lamar alexander who was a higher ed person right. at the department in the past i mean yeah. I, I don't think your background matters as much as where your interests appear to lie
0: i think that's right she made herself a higher ed yeah. a higher person in some ways that, that that is kind of her legacy as the as a secretary um but she she came from the K12 mm-hmm. world and and but that you know back then in the 2000s, it was we, we still had the FELL program. We had a lot of private lenders. A lot of private lenders. We had that the whole thing where mm-hmm. you had all these lenders that were being propped up by the federal government. But it was something like yeah, every day I would come in and there would be all these people from Sally May sitting in sitting in the waiting room of my office on the seventh floor in Maryland Avenue, and that was a lot of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the same thing I think uh, with the current secretary. I mean, these 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 are defense to repayment, the Corinthian collapse, all these things, and so. I will say, it it appears
1: that he has delegated a lot of those uh, to the undersecretaries and and sort of policy folk at the the top of the ladder. And I suspect that that's what we're going to see as well. So one thing I'm interested in watching is whether we end up with sort of a community college job training oriented person. Mm -hmm. There were I'm I'm going to forget the name, so I'm not going to say them. But there were a couple of names floated uh, for secretary consideration that sort of lined up with that who were not really ideologically conservative or liberal at all, but were very focused on this the sort of ties between community colleges in particular and industry, that could be an interesting focus. And I think some some interesting things could get done on that front. Um, on the other hand, it could be someone who sort of – it's very engaged on the culture war side of college mm-hmm. and university campuses. And um, Stephen Miller, who's the new domestic policy director, I believe, he's one of the chief policy people in the White House, is someone who very much is is on that side. And um, mm-hmm. so I, I think that, to me, is going to be the really key appointment that we see here and – whether this person is more concerned about like outrages on college campuses, or whether they're more concerned about you know trying to get stackable credentials to get you from community college to career, because those are really the two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the right of center discussion. Yeah, uh, no, I on think that's ed. right.
0: Um, and
1: they both appeal very strongly to like elements of of Trump's base and Trump supporters.
0: There's definitely a a a strain of thought that you see. And in some of the Republican governors and their kind of engagements with higher ed, which is, shouldn't this be about jobs? Why Mm -hmm. are we, you know, Rick Scott and Scott Walker and like, why do we need all these anthropology majors? And this should really be about, you know, uh, connecting to the workforce. And to be clear, that's not a – that is not – I think that's a too narrow way of thinking about higher education, but it's definitely not an illegitimate one. I mean, we talk. Right. About I that mean, all that is. I
1: mean, it's sort of. Is it uh, one thing that's that's yeah. striking to me about DeVos is as somebody who's been in and around the higher ed world uh, for a while now is that she just isn't. Right. Um. And so that I mean that is not certainly that certainly would be a controversial viewpoint, but it's definitely a conversation that. The higher ed policy world has been having ad nauseum yeah. for the past eight years, at least. I mean, I and I
0: I oscillate back and forth all the time because in 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 some ways I think traditional higher education and these four year degree programs often are too expensive and and uh, are kind of a whole lot of nothing sometimes and and there are, we ought to have diversity of pathways and you know again here at New America we work a lot on trying to kind of get students. Have students have choices, but there are a lot of students where a a shorter, less expensive pathway to a career does is it would actually be a great choice for them, mm-hmm. and and I don't want to shy away from that. But it it can that approach can also have a high degree of correlation with a certain anti-intellectualism and a kind of denial of the role that tr- that more traditional colleges have played in research and scholarship, mm-hmm. and when people start complaining about. Art history majors, which you know, even Barack Obama did, although he corrected himself like five minutes later <laughs> when he said it. But I mean, it, I mean, it's it is a it is not the right way to think or talk about it. I think to kind of, I mean, particularly given that most people are already in career focused majors right now. now, right? You know, so like the the notion that we're just we're a nation of art history majors <laughs> is incorrect, like really, really wrong. That's not a problem that we actually need to solve. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. I think to the extent that there's a constructive set of policy ideas that one could imagine being adopted by this administration. It is at the intersection of higher education, the labor market, um, and innovation and credentialing. You know.
1: Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I'm not saying it would necessarily be good, but at least would be sort of an engagement with the issue in a right. way that we haven't necessarily seen from a lot of yeah. Trump's appointees who sort of want to just get rid of the department they're they're overseeing mm-hmm. and eliminate the federal role so to me right. that's definitely the like sleeper under the radar appointment um which probably won't come until DeVos herself is is confirmed which there yeah. is I I would be shocked if she weren't um
0: I have heard that when uh uh Future Secretary DeVos came to meet with Lamar, Lamar Alexander, the mm-hmm. chairman of the HELP committee, um, to sort of talk through the uh, – uh, do the meet and greet and talk mm-hmm. through the um, the nomination process, which which will probably happen even before the inauguration. So I think they're going to – they will push her through quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, during that conversation, she indicated that she would be very – she's very open to following the chairman's lead. On higher education issues,
1: interesting, which okay. is
0: yeah. um, not surprising. Certainly, no. also, yeah. it, the kind of thing you say to the secretary mm-hmm. who you're depending to uh, to shepherd your nomination, but also you know, in some ways, strengthens Lamar Alexander's uh, pre-existing, already very strong position mm-hmm. as kind of like the head of higher education in Washington. Yes, yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that is he is someone who has been tremendously influential on K twelve in yeah. the past year or so and even before that is sort of a deal maker um, mm. he's in a very different position now with regards to higher education on the other hand um and I, I don't want to get too deeply into Congress yet because we have to talk about something in January mm. but if they're serious about repealing and replacing or repealing and trying to figure out what to do about Obamacare. Yeah. That's also the HELP Committee. Yes. Um, And that has really significant implications for HEA, which is, as as I've said before, the reason I am dubious about HEA reauthorization is just that there is not a great reason to do it um, other than they are supposed to and... There are mm-hmm. definitely some things that could stand to be tinkered with. I mean, loan forgiveness, which I think we're going to hit on briefly. There, there are certainly some obvious targets, even for Republicans who don't want to like vastly expand the role of government in higher education. There are some things they could do. But it is definitely not like a, a class A emergency. And so I suspect no. it's going to fall behind um, whatever else is in the pipeline and repealing and replacing Obamacare for whatever number of bills or amount of legislative time that's going to take. Uh, could very easily consume a good portion of the next two years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you have – if you just think about what the the acronym HELP stands for, they're going to have the – on the H, they're going to have an HHS nominee who hates Medicare. On the L, they're going to have a labor nominee who hates the minimum wage. I assume there's some anti-pensions person out there who hates pensions. <laughs> I,
1: I don't know, Have they done you know? anything on pensions? Yeah, my, I, mean, I think it's time for them to change the name, to be honest. Someone, I, I guess that makes them yeah. the HELP committee.
0: And it's not. <laughs> so, so therefore, pensions are safe forever. <laughs> Purely because of acronymal coincidence, um, but but I mean, actually, there's a lot of important federal policy around ensuring pension plans, and mm-hmm. but it's, it's like super important that that not get screwed up, or yeah. else there are like a lot of people depending on their pensions that will just lose them. So, I, I really don't mean to joke about it at all. Uh, so, like but, in that context, all the more reason to basically, unless. Betsy DeVos, you know, it turns out she killed someone in her will will be the next searcher. Yeah, I'm education.
1: I'm I just I, I do think I think pubs are for labor. I think there yeah. are fights out there. I don't think Betsy DeVos is one of them. Yeah. Um so. I think I think of all of all of his nominees, she is fairly conventional. I mean, mm. she she certainly alarms mm. people concerned about public education for right. for valid reasons, but she's yeah. not She's not someone who is, like, so out there that it's like, what what mm-hmm. is he even thinking? Um, you know, I, I I suspect that she will have a fairly easy road to, to confirmation, given yeah. the other battles out there that the Democrats want to fight.
0: And, you know, and again, this 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 is a mixed bag for higher education in the sense that the the higher education lobby has okay. been on defense for the last 12 years. You know, basically mm-hmm. the second half of the Bush administration and all of the Obama administration, including the traditional higher education lobby, which doesn't like any of this thinking and talking and ideas about how they do their jobs right i mean they have been you know they they didn't like all that talk from margaret spellings and they didn't like any of that talk from barack obama you know they want a system uh, a a kind of a lamar alexander approach which is higher education is fine the federal government has a limited role just support these financial aid programs make sure the research money flows and that's the end of the conversation
1: I think – yeah, I do think this is going to be an interesting case of sort of being careful what you wished for. I also think that research money um, is – is, and I'm not prepared to talk about this on this podcast, but we should talk about it at some point soon uh, – is really going to be a battle. Um, I mean, we have an OMB director who has said, I don't understand why the federal government needs to support scientific yeah. research. Um I suspect the, the, the firepower of the AAU, which has always sort of been trained on this mm. issue, they have never really wanted to engage on the higher ed lobby issues to quite the right. same degree that other institutions have. It's going to be mm. 100% focused on that for the next couple of years. Right. But I do think it's interesting, I mean, knowing many people within who do government relations are, and are in that world, both for associations and for individual institutions um, – the, the sort of cognitive dissonance of being personally and, and politically appalled by Trump, but also the likelihood of actually getting what they want uh, in terms of the federal approach to higher education, mm. unless you end up with witch hunts on college campuses, which I, I think is possible, but not like not likely, but certainly possible. Um, it's got to be sort of an interesting mental balance.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, they, those, the uh, uh, the research universities... They've done okay, pretty well, you know. I mean, they always want more money, but it's mm-hmm. been it hasn't been a disaster under Obama, and so uh, so th- they might
1: disagree about the sequester. I would say,
0: yeah, no, that's right. Um, but they're kind of the sleeping giant mm-hmm. politically, right? Yes, I mean, they yeah. they they don't they haven't needed to to totally focused because things have been all right. I mean, mostly just because the economy has been okay and therefore the federal budget has been okay.
1: They've, yeah, I mean, they felt that they've fought battles yeah. around the margins and I, yeah. I, I have slight, haven't gone to a lot of their press conferences. Right. I think I have a slightly different interpretation, but I haven't done that for most mm-hmm. of the past couple of years. I think the sequester hit them very hard. They were very yeah. concerned about it. Um, they have always sort of fought this fight about, Don't care, don't like caricature university research based on one stupid study that you found. Sure. But I think, yeah, I think the threats that they are about to face uh, are really on the research and Mm -hmm. funding front are really, really profound and that their attention is likely to be on that for the next uh, two to four to six years.
0: And it's, I mean, it's just one of the many reasons that, that, uh, it's going to be hard to make any huge changes in the federal budget. I mean, you're not, because it's not just the universities, you've got the entire medical industry, you've Mm -hmm. got the drug industry. I mean, there are a lot of uh, people with important degrees and big money and like large corporations. And in some ways, the, you know, a lot of the intermingling between the private sector and the university research sector that people are very concerned about also protects all that funding Mm -hmm. um, in very specific ways. So, yeah, I think that will be interesting to see. Um, I I wonder also, I mean, on the the culture stuff is also it's hard to tell and you're right. It might just be a function of personnel. I kind of wonder whether the sort of like all of the controversy, the intra-campus controversy, like between the students and the administration mm-hmm. that we've seen, it, like will people just rally now? put their differences aside and rally around opposition to a government that they see is kind of broadly antagonistic to them you, and their goals. Have you been
1: on Twitter in the past well, <laughs> month?
0: No. I try not to be. No. Yeah, I, no. Yeah. I, I, no? I mean, I, I don't yeah. believe that. I yeah. think, no, okay. um,
1: I think the, one of the major clashes in these campus fights we've seen over the past year, mm-hmm. two years that we've been talking about, as long as we've been doing this and we should shift to your interview yeah. in a minute um, yeah. is, is sort of this, this, huge um disconnect between the politics of the possible and the politics of the ideal and i think if anything that's going to be heightened um i don't think you know 19 year olds are necessarily the best audience for no you need to quit antagonizing you know anti-trump mm-hmm. moderates so that we can all unite around the same issue um if that happened we would not have been having a lot of these mm-hmm. situations in the first place and i think that you know, I mean, are, are we going to see Trump himself like elevating these random campus controversies in a way that Obama occasionally wanted to as like a way to scold liberals and prove that he was hard on both sides? Right. Um, but, it, you know, I that's not out of the question to me. I think I think things on college campuses are not going to get more united or more unified. Even if I mean, I what they, if
0: they did try to use, say, OCR to kind of shift their focus to uh, open quote, free speech, close quote. As a way of punishing campuses that are not, that are uh, inhospitable to conservative views.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at that point, we're really far down the line of hypotheticals. Um, But I do think my guess is the sense among, you know, college campus activists is not that their goals are worth giving up on Mm -hmm. in the name of unity or in the name of of winning.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: um, another thread, just picking up from our previous couple of podcasts. There was more news in the the uh, uh, wonky but always fascinating issue of income based repayment. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I feel I feel pretty good. We had when we had Jason Delisle mm-hmm. on two podcasts ago, and we and if you didn't, if you're interested in this issue and you have not listened to it, go back to two podcasts ago and hear our very lengthy discussion with Jason Delisle on income based repayment. A lot has happened on that issue since then. Um, a couple things just since our last podcast. One, there was a uh, a report from the GAO that basically uh, uh, was very critical of the Department of Education's methods and practices for estimating the cost of income-based repayment.
1: Yes, um, which should not be news to anyone uh, who yeah. has heard our podcast with Jason or followed right. this issue at all.
0: And so there was a lot of my colleague, Alex Holt, wrote a, a long piece, which I thought was was good, kind of just going through point by point, but all the ways that the GAO really took the department for task for not getting a handle on how much this program was really costing. Um, They did also put a number on it, which was $108 billion. Um, now, Now Ben Miller from the Center for American Progress, also a former colleague of mine, also married
1: to my editor. Um, uh, and, a, we and, have a lot and, of just we have a lot to disclose. Yeah, here. And they
0: just had a wonderful baby. So yes, yay. yeah, congratulations. Congratulations ben. to Ben and Miller K. and Kay Steiger um, for their first baby, Sophie Steiger Miller, born two days ago. <laughs> um, she is lovely, and we're all very happy for them. Um, at one point, Ben made was was and this. So anyone who follows this issue, like just keep this in mind: um, the total amount of money that is going to be forgiven under income-based repayment and loan forgiveness is not the same as the cost. Right. So, because people who are in, who have their loans forgiven, many of them pay their loans off, made payments for a longer period of time than they would have under the normal loan repayment. So, if you say, for example, make 20 years of payments and then have some of your principal forgiven, you made a bunch of interest payments Mm -hmm. over that time that you wouldn't have made if you had paid your loans off over 10 years. And so it's actually like for every dollar of forgiveness, it's only like an eighty percent cost. And this, by so the that, way, yeah. is
1: one of the reasons I'm sort of skeptical of the moral hazard argument here, just because people I know are so concerned about the extra interest and in mm. stretching it out. I don't, right. I don't think that applies to every student loan borrower. Right. Um, and I, I don't like to argue by anecdote, but mm. that among people I know who I've tried to sort of say like, hey, you know, there's no reason not to be an IBR mm. is is universally um the idea at least among like financially literate people that you should pay over a shorter period of time and pay less mm-hmm. interest even if stuff gets forgiven is very very hard to dislodge.
0: Right. Um but it's still a big number. But that's a huge that's it's a huge It's still a big number that and is- we we can say this on our podcast but that number lives and will live out there right yes. now and I think a lot of the critiques of the department's methods for uh, uh, estimating it were valid and the, you know the bottom line is they invented this program out of whole cloth as Jason said um uh, pushed it through the 2010 student loan reforms, sped it up through unilateral administrative action, and if you're and and then ran on it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was one of the things that they said they were doing, and they never they didn't do a good enough job of providing credible estimates for how much it costs. And I think it is going to hurt advocates for income-based repayment and loan forgiveness if those things come under attack in the coming years, which I think they will.
1: I also think if, if you know, what you're concerned about is the explosion of debt in some ways, that was a, it was a, it's a counterproductive way to take it on. Um, because, it, sure. and I certainly am guilty of this and I'm sure others mm. as well. It's much more, it's easier to dismiss large loan amounts now mm. by saying, Oh, but you can do IBR and you're going to get it forgiven. Right. And like the fact that, you know, that the amount that people are borrowing is going up every year. doesn't matter as much when they have this relief on the back end. Mm. So I, I think it's worth noting that as well, that there, if, Sort of from both ends, that there are political there are political consequences on this. Also, just to contextualize that number, that's three years of Pell Grants.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, if if like me, everything in the federal budget seems large to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Pell Grant program is literally the only one I know off the top of my head the spending on, and so right. that's sort of what I benchmark everything yeah. for. That's that's three years worth of Pell Grants. Yeah,
0: three years of Pell Grants, nine years worth of the Title One program, something yeah. like that. Um, also uh, yesterday or day before yesterday this week, the American Bar Association sued the Department of Education because. The Department of Education uh, told some of the American Bar Association's employees that they that they had told them that they would qualify for public service loan forgiveness, which again, important distinction, you can have your loans forgiven after 10 years if you work for the government or for a nonprofit, but 20 years if you don't. Mm-hmm. And and it's actually, the difference between 20 and 10 is not, it's not twice as generous, it's like four times as generous right. because of the way interest accumulates. Right. Um. No, the government – so the the department has actually interpreted public service very broadly. Basically, anyone who works for the government or a 501c3 organization, the American Bar Association is like a 501c6 or some kind of 501 something else because it's Mm -hmm. kind of Mm advocacy-ish. And so they originally had said, you're eligible, and then they are like, no, you're not really eligible. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, because it's the Association of Lawyers, they filed a lawsuit. (laughs) I I mean, whether it's – The department
1: maybe should have thought that one through a little bit. Here's
0: the thing, though. I mean – Definitely, if the department told me I could have my loans forgiven and then changed its mind, I would be angry. Yes. At the same time, this is the American Bar Association, which is the accreditor of law schools <sighs> mm-hmm. and which has stood by and done nothing to prevent law schools from jacking up tuition to a crazy amount. It then hires some of those lawyers with huge law school debt to work for itself doesn't pay them enough money to pay their loans back mm-hmm. and now it wants the federal government to bail itself out essentially yeah, right yeah it's I like mean, this it's, full circle i have a little hard time digesting that
1: yeah this is this is Libby anecdote hour but uh i'm gonna there I, I once had a roommate who worked for the american bar association was in his 30s and was living in this like horrendous apartment over a liquor store i lived in when i was in my 20s. so mm-hmm. i can confirm that the aba does not pay its people enough so to you deal know what their, with I their mean, law school loans. okay
0: I mean, they um, were. They this were. Is, I mean,
1: this is sort of the like the like the miniature version of the the PSLF problem, right? Is is that it sort of provides an excuse to underpay people as well?
0: And you know, I mean, and their press releases are like, "Wow, these people are doing important public service work," and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, maybe are you they? should pay. Yeah, well, well, that first of all,
1: I know that could be said of like yeah. only fifty percent of people in PSLF. No, but I, know. Gonna, I know, I know, but it. I
0: mean, of all people, the law schools, the worst offenders, both yeah. in terms of. Exp- Probably exploiting the system in terms of just not giving a damn about tuition, saddling people with debt. I mean, I mean, they were the ABA was was just this year, I think, scolded by Nasiki, or or weren't they suspended from their ability to accredit new law schools by Nasiki because they're like Nasiki something said, like that. I know they yeah. they
1: went through stuff. They went through some stuff with Nasiki.
0: Five minutes. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'm sure the the law school that that the department just said, we're not giving you Title I money to, by definition, must have been ABA accredited, right? Right, Don't you have to be? So, yeah, again, the ABA of all organizations to kind of get on the moral high ground here and kind of be angry. Um, Yeah. But it does show, I mean, you know, the the PSLF was invented in 2007, right? Mm -hmm. So we're now, you know, year 10 is coming up and 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 there are lots of legitimate issues. So again, yelling at lawyers, which is always fun, and I will continue to do aside. Um, it is complicated to sort mm-hmm. of certify these payments. You have to certify one hundred and twenty payments to mm-hmm. I have a colleague here at New America, Rachel Fishman, who, you know, probably knows is probably in like the top hundred people in the world in terms of understanding these policy issues and yet is having a terrible time getting her payments certified. Yes. Like her, her servicer keeps throwing her into deferment and they are denying some of her payments. And it is personally I'm like rooting for it to go badly because I as I keep telling her that we'll just make the story better <laughs> when we finally I'm like I'm like in editor mode, right? You know? So I, know, like, oh, I, I kind of think I should volunteer terrible, to like get our right? like yeah. young
1: fellows and into into yeah. PSLF is, or well, we can't do PSL PSLF because we're not we're not a nonprofit. Um right. but into into IBR is sort of one of yeah. the one of one of my abilities, because yeah, it is it is extremely difficult to navigate, even if you sure. know the system very well. Well,
0: and her problem is she made a bunch of payments while she worked for a nonprofit that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Education sector where I used mm. to work, right? Mm. There's no education sector now. It it, it went defunct. Um, so they and won't so, certify them. And so they're yeah they're hassling her about that. And oh they're going to certify them. And so and you know she has she has her bank statement, she has her tax return, she has letter. I mean every kind of evidence she would want. And yet it's still a huge hassle. And um. So, so right. So it's kind of so that it's context for this money. Now, as I said before, I think ultimately with that amount of money at stake, I'm assuming the kinks get worked out. But, but it's going to be complicated. we'll start to see. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's going to start to start to become very obvious very soon.
0: Right. Um, all right. Well, we are we're closing we, in on yeah, time. Yeah, we are. Um. Uh. Ohio State's in the in the playoff. They beat Michigan. Um. I'm happy about that, even though football is immoral and I can't name anyone on the Ohio State team. Um, Nonetheless, I'm even happy about that. Northwestern
1: is going to the Pinstripe Bowl. I sadly am not because I booked my stay-at-home for the holidays like one day too long already, and it is preventing me from getting back to the Uh, East Coast. Um,
0: That's okay. The what bowl? The Pinstripe Bowl? The Pinstripe
1: Bowl. Bowl, It is at Yankee Stadium, which should actually be kind of cool. Okay, Um, yeah, all right. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed to not go. It's like the closest. It's for sure the closest to D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Pop culture minute. Do yes. we have a minute of do things it. to yeah, say about pop culture? It. We have two, you, three minutes. You, you seen yeah. anything good lately?
0: Yeah. Um. Well, uh, I saw Rogue One last night. Oh, uh, what did you
1: think? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I you know, love I, mean, I love Drug One. I have been totally like surprised by how <clears throat> like mediocre reviewers have found it. I was like, I don't know. I I was really I went into it being like this will be a fun two hours of mm-hmm. my life and expecting like nothing more than that.
0: I thought it was. I liked it a lot. I rank it fourth um, in my mental list of, of Star Wars movies after. Uh, Empire uh, New Hope and Force Awakens interesting yeah I think people's
1: opinions of Force Awakens are like very much a driving factor of what they thought
0: Um, but I enjoyed it I thought it was I thought it was quite good Um, I spent a lot of time on the internet late last night kind of trying if you go if you look at the original trailer Mm -hmm. none of the original trailer is in the movie oh
1: that's interesting yeah like like, I mean this movie for me just flew totally my boyfriend is a big Star Wars fan and I think even for him he was like "Eh, like, we'll go see it we didn't go Thursday night which we both did for Force Awakens last year and we both afterwards we went home and like immediately Turned on a new hope mm-hmm. um, because what I liked about it was that I feel like it like emotionally deepens. Mm-hmm. A New Hope, which is my, my all-time right. favorite of all the Star Wars movies for nostalgia reasons. It, it, um, like in, like, a, in a way that I really didn't expect.
0: One of the great... Even though it's just
1: like, retconning of right, plot well, But, like, but one it of works. Great it
0: really, really works. Successful retcons. Yeah. You know, you're like, right. That totally makes sense. I have
1: such an emotional connection to this movie. I'm that sure I, I jo-
0: George best. Lucas meant that all along and just <laughs> never told us that, that what seemed like a huge plot hole was actually the, the force behind a whole movie, so... <laughs> um no yeah i thought it was good i mean it is interesting though you can they i mean they did a lot they did a bunch of reshoots and the mm-hmm. script rewrite in between and so you the if you go back and look at the original trailer mm-hmm. it's kind of the trailer for a little bit of a different movie
1: yeah yeah um, I, I, this this vaguely so, like rings a bell for me now yeah. i think i saw the trailer once and it, i did not like get inundated with it for uh, some
0: reason but i thought that like i like the diego luna character a lot mm-hmm. uh the the droid that alan tudyk played yes, the droid yeah was was fabulous and it, i mean all the actors were really good i mean it was good it was and i also i didn't realize it had a bunch of really cool outer space battle scenes yes yeah which were like the best star wars outer space battle scenes i think yet yeah I, the i'm not great. a big
1: action person like i do not appreciate yeah. action all that much i kind of want it to be over so i can like quit being nervous about uh, it but it was really
0: yeah.
1: I, I liked the action of this movie which is saying yeah. something there were some issues with the characterization that right. i 100 percent agree with um but i as a movie it was very enjoyable yeah
0: her, i think her character was actually in some ways the 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 weakest part of it. Like, I I like Felicity Jones as an actress, but I thought her character was thin.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the characters were... I think it
0: is because of the rewrites. I I would have taken away, like, 10
1: minutes of the really excellent action and maybe spread that out and given everybody a little bit more of a backstory. Um, But, you know, it's... I I, Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. It is incredibly depressing, and yet not.
0: Yeah. Um, Alright well next time when we come back in January I think we'll have to do some we'll have to do some Oscar stuff Coming up yeah, in January because yeah. we're already in Oscar season And it'll, it'll be in full It'll be in full bloom so we will We will reserve 10 or 15 minutes But we are out of time for now so um, To all of our listeners um, please have a Happy holiday and a great end of 2016 as always Thank you to the fantastic production staff here at New America which does such a great job of Producing these podcasts um, Thank you to Libby uh, be safe be well everyone And we will see you next year
1: Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.